Amen. All right, the book of Nahum. Well, it's uh, it's always been the case uh, that common sense is incredibly uncommon. Common sense is incredibly uncommon among some people. It seems like in our day and age, uh, people are confused about some of the most basic realities of life. In the last 150 years or so, with the prominence of science, it seems like you can uh, precede any statement with these words. Well, science proves that. And then whatever is said after that is automatically going to be believed because people think that science has ultimate authority. In many, in, in many ways, science does help us understand things. I, I don't think that science can actually prove anything, but at the same time, it does help us with the observable realities of this world in many cases. However, one of the many places that beliefs fly, especially cultural beliefs, fly in the face of science is in the role of men and culture in our, uh, uh, the role of men in culture and family. David French, who writes for the National Review, I don't know if you can see this or not, uh, but uh, he wrote an opinion piece this past week, an essay, and it's, the title is this, The Question That Reveals the Heart of the Culture Wars. And do you know what that question is? What is a man? He says, this is the question at the heart of where you stand on different issues in culture. How you answer the question, what is a man? And we think, well, that's an odd kind of thing. But he talks about how many of the cultural elite are not just moving to doubt the role of men, but are actually have taken up the task of universally re redefining manhood. And you say, well, what drives the, the redefinition of manhood? Well, it's the thought process that the male desire for leadership is the root of all evil. That the aggressiveness, the, the competitiveness, the, the vigor that resides within men is inherently and always universally sinful. In our day where intersectionality, which if you don't, don't know what that word is, then go Google it and enjoy your afternoon. In our day where intersectionality is at the root of all moral authority, males are the universal oppressors of all throughout history. That's the cultural perception today. You see, ideas have consequences. We've been saying that over and over and over again. And maybe this idea about so-called toxic masculinity is what fueled the rage of one Washington Post editorialist this past week when she asked the question as the title of her article, Why can't we hate men? Literal. <laughs> a screenshot from Washington Post. In it, this self-proclaimed radical feminist concludes, quote, so men, if you really are hashtag with us and would like us to not hate you for all the millennia of woe you have produced and benefited from, start with this. Don't run for political office. Don't be in charge of anything. Step away from the power. We got this. And please know that your crocodile tears won't be wiped away by us anymore. We have every right to hate you. You have done us wrong. Somebody has issues. This brand of feminism has captivated the cultural imagination with the practices of decrying toxic masculinity and the need of fathers in the home. But this is where modern culture flies in the face of science itself. Because science hasn't proven, but science has affirmed certain things like this. Men and women are different. Ooh. I know, that's shocking, right? Well, if you are a Google employee, apparently that's something that can get you fired. As it was with a Google employee earlier this year who just 
did findings among STEM, uh, among, uh, 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 STEM uh, careers. He noticed that men were wired differently than women. Men were wired differently than women, and that women are are more geared towards uh, towards nurturing, and that men are more geared towards um, towards the the competitive, aggressive types of career paths, or even some of the more analytical. Now, once again, people hear this, and this this shows uh, this shows how uh, to use a modern term how woke you are. Um, that if when I'm saying this, when I'm saying this, that you're like, well, that just sounds big or chauvinistic or misogynistic saying that men are geared towards this way and women are geared towards this way some of you are wondering what woke means just ask your kids or grandkids later on okay um, that you it's it, it, it sounds awfully bigoted to say that men and women are different but it's not it's not bigoted because you can't assume that when somebody's saying men and women are, and women are different, that they're saying that men are more valuable than women. Men are not more valuable than women, and women are not more valuable than men. And men are better at being men than women are. Amen? And guess what? Women are much better at being women than men are. There are certain roles that God has gifted men and women to play. And scientific research actually approves this. In fact, a Daily Mail headline says this. It says, how the absence of a loving father can wreck a child's life. A new study showed that a relationship with both parents is crucial, that children are healthier and more likely to grow up with a good education and get a good job if their biological father lives with them. In fact, Glenn Stanton, this, is, this study is over 20 years old, Glenn Stanton and Kyle Pruitt point out that children who have both parents active and engaged turn out to develop unique neural pathways based on who they are, they are interacting with. They even have done studies, of course, because there's research grants for everything nowadays. They've done studies about how men handle children and how women handle children, like the actual physical handling of a child. Uh, in, in toddlers, like when they get hurt and they cry and they look at their mom, that they expect something different than them when they look at their dad. And we get this. We kind of joke about it, right? That, that you know, you're bleeding and your mom says, oh, come here, let me put a Band-Aid on that. And your dad says, rub some dirt on it. You're good, right? Or if you're not bleeding, stop crying. I mean, there's nothing to cry about. I mean, we, we kind of joke about it that way, but they say that, that they've studied the neuroplasticity of babies, and they say that these neural pathways are created when men, fathers, handle their children and interact with their children. And that when women handle and interact with their children, that different neural pathways are created, and that a, a, the development of a child having both is absolutely crucial. Science affirms these things, but they're not popular because they don't fit a narrative. And it truly sounds like that there's some kind of inherent design, doesn't it? Could it be that God's design for the family, for the active parenting and engagement by both moms and dads, for, the, for feminine women and masculine men, that they are vi both vital to human flourishing? It sure sounds like it. And so when we come today, we're recognizing and we're affirming, we're starting from the pre presupposition that this is the case, that there is a design to it all. 
But how does this fit with the prophet Nahum today? You might be wondering, and that's a good question. And so let's dive in and see. The book of Nahum is three short chapters. Three short chapters. And look at uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. You see, the prophet Nahum lived and ministered around 640 B.C. Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and had already failed to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And see, much like Jonah, 150 years earlier, God calls Nahum to rise up and go to Nineveh. So if you're, that, that's why um, the book of Nahum comes after the prophet Micah. But right before the prophet Micah is the prophet Jonah. And if you want to, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can write above uh, the title there, above Nahum, write 150 years after Jonah. Because what happened when Jonah went and preached to Nineveh? They changed. Yeah, they, they repented, right? They, they trusted in God. They, from the king all the way down to the commoner, they repented of, the, they repented of their sins. They turned to God. And so generations had passed, though, since Jonah had preached to them. And now Assyria has come in, and the capital city of Assyria is Nineveh. Nineveh, Assyria, has come in. They've conquered the northern tribes. Hezekiah uh, survived the attack, the, the king of southern Judah, or southern Israel, Judah. They survived the Assyrian attack. And so now Assyria has, is, a, is a world power, but Judah is still in existence. And Nahum prophesies that even though God used uh, Nineveh to be a, an instrument of judgment and correction against the northern tribes of Israel, even though that's the case, that what they are doing as, as a major world power, the kind of injustice the kind of horrors that they are perpetrating on their culture and the culture of the people that they conquer is worthy of God's judgment. And God will not stand by and let it happen. And so he prophesies that the city of Nineveh would fall around 612 B.C. Now there's a typo on your, uh, on your handout. Under, I think it's in the discussion questions or in the fast facts. It says 62 B.C. I just forgot the one. So it's actually 612 B.C. when uh, the Babylonians would come in and they would conquer Nineveh. And so the, the city of Nineveh would change hands from Assyria to Babylon. And the whole point of this book, the whole point of the prophet Nahum is that uh, God will not allow for violent empires to endure. They will always come to an end. And, and I know probably this past week you've been praying, like I've been praying, that the evil, violent, inhumane empire of North Korea, that there would be a peaceful end to, to their violence. That there would be a, a, a voluntary end to their rage. And that the de denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula would be a reality in our day. That would be wonderful for the South Koreans. That would be, and we, we pray that along with the, the denuclearization that, that would, there would be uh, human rights justice for many people. Because for years they have perpetrated violence among Christians. I, I actually heard it this morning. That it, it, is, it is a reality in North Korea that if you own a Bible you can be put in jail. And it is regular that if your children go to school, to a public school or government school there, that they will ask, do your parents own a Bible? Do they talk about God? And they will go and separate those children from their parents and they will raid those homes and the parents will go to jail. 
And so it's just this, these, these horrors that are being perpetrated against human beings, and there's no religious liberty. And so we pray that, that there will be an influence from the United States uh, on North Korea. And so this whole idea that God will, will not allow violent empires to endure is the whole point of the prophet Nahum. But what does Nahum actually say? And that's where we want to get into the message. And, and, and you, can just, you can just follow along with me. I'm going to give you a few key verses in each chapter since it's only three chapters. And so Nahum chapter 1, the reason that we sang a mighty fortress is our God is because of, of Nahum chapter 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. So so look, Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold or a mighty fortress in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of His adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. You see, a declaration of judgment is coming to this world power of Assyria and Nineveh. God is not afraid of all of their supposed human might. God doesn't delight in the power of men, in the power of nations, in the weapons of nations, but He delights in humility. And we have been created to worship God, not ourselves and not our own creations. And so Nahum affirms, he says, the Lord knows who take refuge in Him. And the implication is that if you're not at one of the people who take refuge in God, then you naturally become an enemy of God. This is the way that, that uh, it was put last year by the Life Action Ministries uh, uh, revivalist, Wilson Green. He said, he said, we want to humble ourselves before God because the last thing that we should want is for God to humble us. You get the difference there? We, we, should, we should want to humble ourselves before God because the last thing that you want, especially if you want a great example of this, just read the rest of chapter 1. The last thing that you should want is for the Lord to appear in jealousy and vengeance and wrath because He will come as a whirlwind and a storm. Because the mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him in the world and all who dwell in it. No one can stand before His indignation. No one can, can endure the heat of His anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken to pieces by Him. You don't want this God to humble you. Therefore, humble yourself before the Lord God. First Peter says, so that you may be exalted. And so that's Nahum chapter 1. In Nahum chapter 2, he declares the destruction of Nineveh. And this chapter uses poetic language to describe the overflow of Nineveh. And when you read these chapters, you get a very clear picture of how serious God is about sin and injustice. I mean, just you can kind of read later verse 5 of chapter 2 and just how serious this picture is. But then chapter 3, he talks about... the. Um, this fact that how will they fall? How will the people of Assyria fall? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, or that is the city built on blood, all full of lies and plunder, to no, uh, no end to the prey. See, sin, what, what, what the prophet Nahum is saying is he's saying that sin... When you partake of sin, that when you, when you engage in sin, then the natural consequence is that you objectify and dehumanize other people. So, so think about what we've been talking about with all of, the, all of the prophets thus far and what we've learned from the Old Testament. That God gave His covenant to shape His people into worshipers. 
And by their worship, God would transform them into the kind of people who contribute to being a blessing or contribute to restoration and be a blessing rather than a curse. But false worship or idolatry actually makes you part of the problem, not part of the solution. You contribute to the brokenness of the world when you are an idolater, when you worship anything but the God of Israel. Anyone but Jesus, you become a part of the problem. Well, the negative way of saying that is when you commit the sin of idolatry, then you are naturally viewed to look at other people as less than you are. You dehumanize them. That means you strip them of their God-given dignity. You objectify them. You turn them into objects that are solely meant to accomplish your ends. Selfishness. You become a self-absorbed, self-centered person. That's what sin always does. And it, because we say sin always separates, that selfishness takes root in you, and you are separated from those you love, and you're separated ultimately from God the Father. And so this is, this is what Nahum is saying. He's saying ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. If you built Nineveh on bloodshed and on lies and on plundering other nations, then guess what? Somebody is going to arise that is more powerful than you because in your power you're going to get comfortable. Somebody's going to arise that's more powerful than you and they will devour you. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Are you better than Thebes? Thebes was a, a, a city that had just been conquered several years earlier. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Looked like it was a safe place. A rampart at sea and, her, and water her wall. I mean, this, this place looked impenetrable. It, nobody should have been able to conquer Thebes, but they did. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile and she went into captivity. Basically, what he's saying is, he's saying these people thought they stood firm too, but they were really on faulty ground. These people had the same desire, was to be the most powerful. But when you oppress others... Don't be surprised when somebody turns to oppress you. Oppression only begets more depression. Uh, I mean, oppression. And as our friends in the Bible Project, they summarize, God is grieved by the death of the innocent. His goodness and His justice compel Him to orchestrate the downfall of all oppressive nations. And I mean, that's the way the book ends. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you, they clap their hands over you. When they hear about your destruction, they just stand by and say, Good. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And so, how do we apply this? Well, briefly, and we're not going to get into this, but we, as citizens, as temporary citizens of the earthly nation known as America, the book of Nahum should cause us to ask hard questions about the injustices of our past and present. We should be, we should be very, uh, one of the ways we should humble ourselves is to understand some of the grievances, uh, some of the oppression that has been part of our history. And the oppression that still continues to this day. One of the, uh, you guys know I'm a fan of the Babylon Bee. Uh, and... Um, and it says uh, they, they were having a play on a lot of people saying about, you know, how could the United States sit down with North Korea and all of their human rights injustices. 
And so the Babylon Bee turned that on, turned that on its head and said, North Koreans astonished that Kim, Kim Jong-un sitting down with nation who's killed 60 million babies. Right? I mean, when, when, when you want to put the, the balance of our injustices between us and North Korea, it's like, wait, maybe we're not so clean. Because we're not, in that sense. But we should be grieving over our own injustices because God, from the book of Nahum, very clearly sets, him, sets himself up as the adversary of those who seek to perpetrate injustice. Many human beings are the cause of injustice and God wants to raise us up as the church to restore justice and harmony and peace through truth and through love. And we've been saying it for weeks now. When you see injustice in society, run to it. Run to it with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run to it with the beauty of God's design. Run to it and be broken with those who are broken and love those who are hurting, those who are on the verge of making horrific life decisions. Run to them with the transforming power of the gospel. Let that be the way that we respond to the injustices that are in our own land. But this is Father's Day, right? How do we apply the book of Nahum to fathers? Well, as we mentioned earlier, one reason that, that uh, manhood is seeking to be redefined is because manhood is broken. We live in a fallen world. And the reality of the brokenness in our world is that all institutions and all human beings have brokenness within them. We, we all have the seeds of our own demise rooted deeply within us. And that's why we need the transforming power of the gospel to come and uproot the old desires, what Paul calls the old man, and make us into a new man with new desires, godly desires, uh, real convictions, real, uh, a real difference about us that Jesus calls a life that is put within us. That's, that's what we need. We, we do have to realize that manhood, as we know it, and even, I mean, ladies, you can, you can understand, womanhood is broken. And you know what we call those? We do call those chauvinism and feminism. We do, the, we do call those things misogyny. We call those things what they are. Manhood and womanhood is broken. There is such a thing as toxic masculinity. We shouldn't be surprised by these things, but we also shouldn't give in to the fact that they're just constants. Because God has given us the answer. See, the family is the first institution, the foundation of all creation. And therefore, if the culture is broken, guess what else is broken? The family is broken. And what institution has God put on this earth to speak into and equip families? The church. See, the family becomes the touchstone of restoration when Christians honestly engage in the biblical design for the family. We apply it when we walk in it. That's how we find restoration. Listen, who can speak clearly in the lives of families? It's not schools, the educational system, it's not our government, it's not civic organizations. All, all of these things have their place. But the answer lies not in anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the church is equipped to nurture God's design and to speak truth. It is our job to exalt biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, which are the answer to all of the distortions that are out there. It is our job to teach boys to be boys and girls to be girls. It's our job to teach the beauty of covenant marriage. 
The stakes are too high and the consequences are too tragic to avoid these things. What does this have to do with Nahum? The seeds of Nineveh's destruction and downfall were planted by their leader's commitment to violence. You see, men, we are called by God to be leaders. Leaders of our home, first and foremost. Now, there are there, there are areas of our society where where women will hold authority over men. I mean, um, when I when I like for instance, several weeks ago, my um, our little homeschool group went and toured the, the nuclear plant. And one of the first people to greet them at the door there was Miss Dee because she works in the nuclear plant. Now, you will never, ever, 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 ever hear me say, well. So-and-so's a woman, therefore there should be a more qualified man, or I'm more qualified than, than, than her that needs to hold that position. That, that's just ridiculous, right? That flies in the face of everything we know about God's purpose and, and the way that God gifts people and God calls people to certain vocations. That's not reality. So there are certain areas in which women have more authority and more knowledge and, and maybe even more skill, definitely more skill than men in, in, in there are many areas. But when it comes to the home, Men, you are the culture creators of your home. And the culture, get this, don't, don't miss this. The culture is created by the choices you make. And then the future generations are created by that culture. We were in college class, and we were talking about jobs, and, and, and one of our students who's in the class, one of our people in our class, just talked about brokenness in our community. What's the root of that brokenness? Families. Absent fathers. The culture is set when the father is not in the home. And that's the reason for it all. Everything else is a fruit problem. The root problem is that there is absent male leadership and covenant marriage between a loving husband and a loving wife committed to that child's growth. That's the problem. Do we realize that that's the problem? If you're a teacher, isn't it? That's the problem. <laughs> we, there's no reason to run to other answers. That's the problem. And so men, what's Father's Day about? It's not about you guys coming in here and us like bashing you with the Word of God saying you need to be a part of our men's ministry and if you're not, then you're not being the man. That you... That's not it. It's, it's saying this very clearly. Men, you have, the, you have the, the, not just the obligation, the privilege to sow the seeds of the future generation's success in the choices you make about how your home is to be run. And you join with your wife and you create a culture in that home that will contribute to your child's flourishing. And here's the, here's the amazing thing about the clarity that God brings to the, to the Christian home. Is that apart from a spiritual wholeness, a shalom, a peace, a fullness, where husband and wife are worshiping God... 
and children are invited to worship God, it doesn't matter how much material prosperity you have. It doesn't matter how much, uh, what other areas of, of prosperity that you have. If you don't have that wholeness spiritually, then the home will never be right. And so whose responsibility is it? Ours. So let's not run from it. Let's embrace it. Let's be encouraged that God gave us this opportunity. And that's the question that I want to ask the men in here. Men, what seeds are you sowing? Are you sowing the seeds of your own downfall by the choices that you create and the culture that you create around you and your family? Or are you sowing the seeds of success and flourishing that God has, God has, God has created you to sow? Anybody who lived through the 80s knows who that is. Anybody? Bruce Springsteen. I put the older picture, right? So it's the boss, right? So in 2016, Bruce Springsteen put out a memoir. And he talked about in 1990, when his son Evan was about to be born, that his dad spontaneously made a 400-mile uh, trip uh, from one part of California to another and surprised Bruce at his home. I think his dad's name is Doug. Yeah, Doug. Doug Springsteen. Doug Springsteen arrived at Bruce's door a few days before his son Evan was born. And they sat around and they talked. And his dad looked at him square in the face and said, Bruce, you've done well. And you've done good by us. He said, but I, I, didn't, I didn't do good by you when you were growing up. And Bruce Springsteen in his memoir, as he's addressing these issues that he has with his dad and with his, his, the way he grew up, he says, that was what I needed. I needed, I needed to hear him say that. Because the fact was that he did do wrong. So much so that Bruce Springsteen confesses that his life was never what it ought to have been. Now think about his success. His life was never what it ought to have been because he says in his own words that every night that he would stand on the stage and as vigorous as his performance was. I've never seen him in concert, but I've seen videos. It's kind of, I mean, he's, he's all over the place. He's a, he's, a, he's a great show to watch. He said the reason that he is that person on stage, and these are his words, is because every single night he's standing on stage and he's crying out, Daddy. Just wanting his dad to notice him. That's not me. That's not preacher talk. That's not sermon illustration talk. That's Bruce Springsteen in his own words. Doesn't know the Lord. So how important are fathers? How important is the culture that a father creates with his words and how he spends his time and how he treats his wife and what he chooses to do with his money. How important is it? It is of utmost importance. And so men, God created you to create that culture. That culture you create will shape your kids. It will shape their view of life, their view of God, their view of the church, their view of marriage one day, their view of friendships. And so what steps should you be taking to do life according to God's design? Well, I just want to give you a couple. First of all, seek the Lord. Seek to know the Lord and to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pursue Him more than anything or anyone else. Because God, as you seek Him, commits Himself to make you exactly what your family needs you to be. Secondly, work hard, but don't worship your work. So find balance in there. Work hard, but don't worship your work. Your family will be able to tell the difference. 
thirdly, these are not in any necessary order except for that first one always comes first. But, but thirdly, love your wife sacrificially. Love your wife sacrificially. Your kids will notice how you love your wife. Your sons will love their wives like you love your wife. Your daughters will look for men to love you like you love your wife. If, it, if that makes you tremble, good. It should. Lastly, seek out godly brothers who will help you create a culture and a community to exalt God's design and bear one another's burdens. Anthony Bourdain this past week, you know the, the news story about what happened with him. Even the guys who were filming the show with him just a few days earlier said, we didn't see anything wrong. But the fact was that Anthony Bourdain in his own life had said that he was lonely. Lonely. Listen, if you do family according to God's design, if you do church according to God's design, I'm not going to tell you you're not going to be lonely. But what I will tell you is that you will find that in your loneliness you'll have people knocking on your door texting you or calling you. When we engage in relationships with others, in particular when we engage in relationships with other godly brothers in Christ, then it is the remedy to exactly what men are facing in our culture. And so that's this invitation. That's what this is about. Leonardo da Vinci said, whenever I want to criticize something, I just create something more beautiful. My words today have not not been attempting to heap insult upon an already broken culture. That, that is no good. But it's simply to say that culture is broken. But God has called us to first and foremost create something more beautiful with our concept, our understanding of manhood, our concept, our understanding of womanhood, our concept, our understanding of childhood, our concept, our understanding of fellowship. God is looking to create in us something more beautiful than this world has ever seen. I utterly believe that. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here today. And so in this world where men are seen as the problem, my encouragement is, brothers in Christ, let God make you the solution. The kind of man that points to Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, I'll be down here in the front as we sing our song of invitation. If you need somebody to pray for you, if you have something going on in your life, I know it's extremely awkward to come down uh, in public, but here's my fear. I, really, we, we have the time of invitation because we recognize that sometimes, many times, God moves you to make a public decision. But when we close this time of invitation and we close out our service and we go home, the invitation's not over. I'm coming to grips even more with the fact that in, here in our community in South Alabama, that many of you are sitting here today and you're wearing a mask. Because the people around you are looking at you and they expect to see something, or at least you think they're, you, they expect to see something of you. But there is brokenness here. And so that's why they, what I'm about to say to you, I'm, I mean with absolute seriousness, this invitation is never over. Is that we are here, we, the staff leadership of this church, the deacons of this church, we are here to pray for you. 
we're here to bear burdens with you. We are here to, to help you in whatever way you need. Don't keep the mask on. Take it off. Because remember what we saw in the book of Job. God delights when we approach him in honesty, even when that honesty makes us ask some really hard questions. Don't ask those hard questions alone. And so when this, as we start this time of invitation, if God's moving you to come forward today, you come forward today. But when this invitation concludes, it's not over. We're still here for you. And so that amount, let me pray for us.